nothing huge, but just small things that pile up. Anyone? A few of us have had those. Um, it starts as an annoyance and then snowballs into complete disaster. Um, I'm, I'm going to share with you kind of my idea of the prototypical bad day. This happened to me uh, whenever I was right out of high school. I had my first job post-high school. I, I went into the workforce instead of going directly into college. And, and I, I worked about 45 minutes away from where I lived, so I commuted every day. And I had to be there at 9 o'clock. It was a real 9 to 5. So I had to be there at 9 o'clock. And, and starting this day, I slept through my alarm and woke up at 8.45. I had 15 minutes to drive 45 minutes to work, and that's if I, I didn't get a shower and was just willing to stink up the room, right? And so I woke up late. I, I grabbed some coffee. Luckily, I, I was still living with my parents at the time. They'd made coffee, and I filled up my Go Cup, but apparently I didn't press the lid down enough because after I got in the car, the first drink that I took, it just came off, and coffee went everywhere. Um, now, I was wearing a, a darker shirt, so I thought I, it'll be okay. Um, I, so I get to work late. I sneak in so that my boss doesn't see me. I mean, she knows, but I, don't, I just don't want that snarky look of, you know, why are you late again, um, looking at me. And then uh, I, I sat down. I was, I was working a phone bank at the time in a bankruptcy department at a legal office, and immediately my phone rang the second I hit the button. And I got the worst calls of people yelling and screaming and angry at me that I had, I had ever had. So hours of people yelling at me like I had caused all the problems in their life. But I knew that if I could just get through a few hours, there was going to be a meeting. There was a meeting coming up where there were going to be snacks. You guys ever have one of those at work? <laughs> Meetings with snacks. And so I was happy uh, that that was going to come. And so as soon as the meeting was up, I hit the button to stop the phone calls. I got out of my chair, and I went to the meeting room where everyone was gathered. And um, so I went to sit down. I had, like, a, my plate of snacks. And I go to sit down at the table. And as I sit down, there's this real loud rip sound. Have you ever been there? Um, Everybody hears it, and so I'm sitting there to cover up my shame, covered in coffee, an awful day, I rip my pants, everybody knows it, and uh, so I went home early, but not for a good reason, and I, I got in bed early that night. And I went to sleep thinking, well, we'll start over tomorrow. Today was a rough day. Whenever we have rough days, a lot of times we ask the question, why me? <laughs> rough days happen, but why me? Why today? Um, but sometimes we have rough days that aren't just small things that pile up, right? Something really bad happens, something that you can't sleep off in a night. Um, maybe instead of being late to a job, we lose a job. Maybe we wake up and there's an argument with someone who's close to us and our relationship is broken. Um, rough days 
traumatic enough can pile up as well, right? You have enough rough days in a row, and it's no longer just a rough day. It becomes a rough season. It becomes a rough month, a rough year. Has anybody ever had a rough year? We can ask the same question, can't we? Why me? Why now? Why here? And the thing about rough seasons is, is if enough of them pile up, if enough traumatic events happen enough time in your life, you stop thinking that, man, I'm having a bad year. Like the joke on Facebook recently has been that 2016 was horrible, right? But if you have enough 2016s, it stops being a rough year. It stops being a rough season, and you can start to feel like your, your life is rough. When bad seasons string together, and whenever your hopes turn to dust, they collapse all around you, what's left? I watch people that I love reach the end of their lives asking the question, why me? And so in that darkness and in that despair is often when a verse like the one we read today shows up. It comes on, a, in a, on like a little coffee mug that someone buys you, or it comes in a greeting card. It's on the lips of a friend. People want you to feel better. They want you to, to snap out of the despair and, and the frustration. And so they give you a verse. I'm going to read it again. Listen to it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And for some, verses like this are an immediate comfort. You hear them, you hear the, the proclamation that God is faithful, and you feel better. For some of us, that's true. Praise God if that's you. The words are meant for comfort, and if they comfort you immediately, then praise God. But I want to acknowledge that there are others of us. You can take a wild guess which one I am. There are others of us that when we get the greeting card with these verses on it, that our soul doesn't just leap for joy and say, oh yeah, right. For some of us, whenever we see these words in the depths of our darkness, they are just that. They are words on a page and nothing else. It might as well say, you know, pizza 50% off at Papa John's. And maybe you would be more thrilled if that were actually the case. But it's just words on a page. And, and there's a loneliness and a despair in reading words from God that are supposed to be encouraging, but for some reason just aren't. I won't ask you to raise hands, but has anybody been there? The, roads are, the words are supposed to be encouraging, but they're, it's, it's like 
Looks like the page is empty. I don't know how to immediately fix that feeling, but what I do want to do is I want to give us some context to these verses, because oftentimes when we read them, we read them in a vacuum. God is faithful, God is merciful, God is loving, and, and they're printed on a card or on a mug or, or on a calendar, and, and that's all we see. And so for those of us who feel despair and wonder how could these words be of any help, I want to take us to the context. I want to back up just a little bit. Now, we are in the book of anybody? Did, did you catch the title of the book? Lamentations. These are happy words in a not very happy book. In fact, this is one of the very small windows of happiness in this book. It's five chapters long. It consists of five poems that were written, tradition has, by the prophet Jeremiah after Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed by the Babylonians. They came in in an army, laid waste to everything. They desecrated the temple. They raped and they pillaged and they burned. They just, it was utter destruction. And so the prophet Jeremiah sits down with his pen and, and get this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the words of sorrow that he pins are not just his own. They come from God, too. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes five poems that are, are just pure grief. And for those of us who would hear words of encouragement and just think, well, that's nice, I want you to hear these words from just a, a little bit before. This is Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. He has made my teeth to grind on gravel and has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished and so has my hope in the Lord. Does that resonate with anybody? forgotten what happiness is. Someone pats you on the shoulder and says, cheer up, and you've forgotten what happiness is. It's full of comfort. In this small section, there's no hope. Jeremiah, along with other Israelites are deep, deep, deep in despair. All that's left is hurt. And it's into that darkness that there's a whisper, that there's, there's just a flicker of light that comes. Continuing in verse 19. Remember my affliction in my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore have hope. Did you catch that in verse 21? We've just had two other poems and 20 previous verses of, dis of, of despair, of darkness, of blackness, of hurt, 
of pain and of grief. And into that, a thought enters his mind. He remembers something. He has no hope. He's forgotten what happiness is. He has nothing but despair. And in that hopelessness, a thought comes to his mind. And he's given hope. Jeremiah doesn't get these words on a greeting card. They're whispered to him by God in the darkest night of his soul. Whenever we're in utter despair, these words are for us. I can make fun of the coffee cups and the calendars and the greeting cards, but hear me, these words are for those that hurt in the same way that Jeremiah hurt. So here are the words. Again in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God loves his people. If you belong to the family of God, that means he loves you. Even in your depression, even in your pain, even whenever you've mouthed a curse against the lot he's handed you, he loves you. And it says that that love is steadfast and that it never ends. It never ceases. Steadfast, that means it's resolute. It doesn't waver. It doesn't get weak. It doesn't start to collapse under the weight of what you're going through. His love is strong and it never ends. He feels affection for you. Do you hear that? Whenever God looks at you, there is warmth in his heart towards you, even when you feel most cold. If you're in his family, he loves you. And he cares about you. The next line is that his mercies never come to an end. Hear this, God takes pity on the lowly. When he sees us in our trouble and in our pain, he feels mercy towards us and he acts in mercy towards us. They never come to an end. In fact, the next verse, verse 23, says this. It says that they are new every morning. Hear this. Today does not have to be yesterday. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? If you're used to your days being rough and a certain way, if you're used to living in depression and despair of looking at your life and saying, why me? Know this, tomorrow doesn't have to be what today was. Today doesn't have to be what yesterday was. Next year doesn't have to be what last year was. God's mercies are new every day. 
That means whenever we get up in the morning and we take air into our lungs, it doesn't matter what we've just learned about a family member who got sick. It doesn't matter if we lost our job and we don't know how we're going to pay the bills. The bad news that came yesterday does not have to define our future. We may have to deal with the consequences. We may have to look at a city that's on fire, but his mercies are new. We don't have to live in the despair that comes. Another implication of the idea that his mercies are new is that they are fresh. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean that whenever God gives you a mercy today, that maybe he also gave you yesterday and the day before and the day before, he's not annoyed that he has to keep giving it to you. It's like it's the first time in his mind. If he gives you strength for today, it is strength for today, and he will not resent having to give you strength tomorrow. He doesn't resent having to give you strength yesterday. God's mercies are new every day. And so if you look at your life and, you are, and you're thinking to yourself, I, all I can do is take it day by day right now because that's all I've got, good news. God will walk with you day by day. You don't have to know how you're going to fix it. His mercies are new. They're fresh every morning. God is not annoyed whenever his people are broken in his presence. The next line in verse 23 is just a proclamation. Jeremiah says that they're new every morning, his mercies are new every morning, and then he just stops and he says, great is your faithfulness. Take a moment and recognize how amazing it is that he can say, great is your faithfulness, as he looks at a city that's burning. The promise that God had made to his people and to Jeremiah is that I would send a king that would sit on a throne forever. And the throne is on fire. Do you see how amazing it is that, that Jeremiah can say, great is your faithfulness at a time like this? He looks at his current circumstances, circumstances that will take decades, centuries to change. And he says, great is your faithfulness. The man who wrote these poems of lament and said, great is your faithfulness, died before he ever saw with his own eyes, God keep his promise in all its fullness. Friends, we can only get through the type of disaster that Jeremiah got through by having a faith similar to his. We have to be able to see past the now into what yet may, what's yet to come. God will keep his promise. Jeremiah knew that. Inspired by the Spirit, he wrote those words. 
greatest repentance. In the last words of this section, in verse 24, it says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Strip everything out of your life. Take everything away. Take away your job and your relationship. Take away your, your hobbies and your home and your family. Take away the clothes on your back and the food that you put in your mouth. Take everything away. Everything away. Take away your health. Take away the years of your youth. What do you have left? Take it all away. What's left? If the worst kind of disaster struck tomorrow and took everything, what's left? It's tempting to say nothing. But that wouldn't be true. If you take everything that you value in this world away, (laughs) you still have a heavenly father who loves you, who cares for you. If you have had the worst life of anyone who's ever lived, you still have a God who loves you. The word here is this, the Lord is my portion. He's the one that provides for me. He's my inheritance. He's my hope. Therefore, I will hope in him. Before Jerusalem was destroyed, Jeremiah and the people of Israel could look at the great city. They could look at the temple. They could look at the palace. They could look at the armies and the livestock and the commerce. And they could say, look at all this great stuff we have. There were so many things to hope in. You could hope in a career that would take off. You could hope in an investment that would come in. You could hope in raising children that would grow up to be better than you. You know, good little well-paid doctors or something. But with the city on fire, with people killed and taken away, kind of hard to hope in those things. When everything is stripped away, our only hope, our only provision is in God himself. Very quickly, after just a couple more sections, um, Jeremiah's hope looks back again at the destruction and at the sin and at the terrible things that are going on and we move back into grief. The thought came in, sparked a hope in the author, but the tears didn't immediately go away. You hear that? If you're depressed... And a small hope has lit in you that you're clinging to. That doesn't mean your depression is just going to fly away. The tears continued. There were more laments. Decades passed. Centuries passed. But God's work wasn't done. I want to read a parallel passage now. Out of the book of Romans. 
God is faithful. Jeremiah didn't live to see it, but the king that he was waiting on came. God himself put on flesh, became a man, came to earth, the king whose kingdom would never end. (laughs) But even then, he didn't act like anyone expected him to. He didn't march into Jerusalem with armies, on horseback, holding a spear or a scepter. He rode in on a donkey, not to triumph, but to his death. It would be a different kind of triumph. And as a result of his death, the, the enmity, the, 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 the bad, broken relationship between sinful people and a holy God was repaired. And, and the Apostle Paul, one of his disciples, um, who, who came late after he'd already died, um, looked on this fact, looked on a world that was still filled with suffering and brokenness, and he penned these words. This is Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. He said this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Great is his faithfulness. The promise continues. If anything, we have a better hope than Jeremiah did because we've seen the king. We've tasted a small bit of his kingdom. And in our own despair, in our own despair, we don't have to be lost. The promise continues. Just a few words of application as we reflect on the uh, text and as we look into our life in the coming week. What do we do with this? First off, I want to challenge you to cling to Christ. Jesus made a way through his sacrificial death that we might live as God's children. That means the promise is for us. That means the hope that's in God when everything else is stripped away is for us. 
relish what he's done for you. Cling to him. Appreciate him. Praise him. In the time of frustration this week, I challenge you, take just a few moments to say thank you to Christ. Because even if you're suffering, burn your body up, he's still there. He's still there. The second challenge I want to give you is this. Invest in your soul. Do you hear me on this? There are a million things that you can do in this life right now. We live in relative peace, in relative prosperity. We live in a society that encourages us to chase the trivial. There are a million TV shows to watch. There are a thousand video games to play. There are a million lakes to fish in, boats to sail on, restaurants to eat at. Take some time this week to invest in your soul. Someday all of that will be gone. And what will be left will be you and Jesus. Take some time to invest in your soul. If you're, if you're Christ's, if you belong to him, that means he's put a life inside you. Feed the flame of that life. And then the third challenge I want to give you, and this is probably the hardest one, is this. When discipline comes, when suffering comes, when the rough days come, when the rough seasons come, and if you get near the end of your life and you look back and you say, I've had a rough life. I want to challenge you to accept it. To live in it. To acknowledge that, yeah, things have been real bad. But not let that consume you. Why me? Why now? Why here? The truth is, is I don't know. If you come to me and you say, I'm suffering, why me? I don't know. Maybe it's because you sin and God is rebuking you for your sin. Maybe it's because someone close to you sinned and you're just collateral damage. Maybe it's because the sin in the world has just in general boiled up so much that judgment has come. I don't know why you, but I do know that this isn't the end. That this life, as awful as it may seem at times, is not the end. There's another life to come with Christ. And so when suffering comes, don't run into despair. Run into the arms of Christ. His mercies are new every morning. And his love never ends. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, I just want to thank you for the mercy that you 